We've got a lot of ground to cover um, in this session. I want us to think about two things, um, either of which could be a day on its own. But one is, what does the Bible say around these issues? And then the second thing is, how do we try to commend what the Bible says, given what we've observed about the culture in which we find ourselves? So let's think about what the Bible teaches. And I want us to do this in uh, two or three parts. I want us to begin in the Gospels with Jesus. So again, if you've got a, a Bible to hand, um, either open it up or switch it on. And uh, we're in Matthew chapter 15, we're going to begin with. Um, I became a Christian uh, August 1993, around the 3rd or 4th of August, I don't know the exact day, but I do remember the, the moment I was, had been going to church for a few weeks um, by that stage, only a few weeks, but uh, long enough to know that the Jesus I'd grown up imagining was far more anemic than the Jesus who was in the Bible. And by the time it got to the beginning of August, I remember thinking, Jesus died for me, and he rose for me. He's someone I can trust my life to, and I remember thinking, I want to follow Jesus from, from now on. Didn't know what that would mean, didn't know where that would lead or what it would involve or what it would look like. I just knew I could trust him. So whether, wherever that led me it would be fine because it's Jesus. But I'd only just begun to recognize my own sexuality and my own sexual feelings. And so the big question I kind of began my Christian life with was what does Jesus think about sexual ethics? What does Jesus have to say about this? So I want to share with you two passages where Jesus particularly shapes how we are to think about human sexuality. Kevin DeYoung's book is, is superb at going deeper into the, the passages that, that deal with these things. But I want us to start here. So Matthew 15 and verses 19 and 20. Uh, just to set the scene, Jesus is talking to Pharisees and scribes. These were people who, who had a very developed understanding of sin and as far as they were concerned, sin was a bit like an infection. It, it was out there and you needed to, to remain uncontaminated by it. You needed to kind of protect yourself from it. And so they developed systems of, of ritual washings, of avoiding certain people and places and things, anything that, they, that might infect them with sin. And Jesus says something to them that actually really devastates their way of thinking. Because in Matthew 15, verse 19, Jesus says, For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Not from out there in the world, but from in our own hearts. Sin is not out there to be avoided, it is in our hearts to be confessed. And I take it that's a challenge to us today in a, in a couple of ways. I, I was speaking with um, a student recently who was um, brought up by very conservative Christian parents and they were determined that he would grow up without having to face and struggle with sin. 
So they thought if we can protect him from sin, he will grow up just fine. Um, I was giving a talk recently in, um, down in Arizona, and maybe it's just people are in the sun too much down there and it affects their thinking. But uh, one of the talks I gave, the advertising on it said, it was on this kind of issue, that the advertising said not appropriate for children, adult themes are going to be considered. And I was thinking, this is, I've never been rated R before. This is, this is a new experience. <laughs> so I said to the guy organizing the event, I said, why have, you, why, have you rated, why have you given me this R rating? So I'm just talking about what the Bible says. The Bible talks about sin and sexual sin. It's, let's not be more, more prudish than God is. Paul talks about sexual immorality in Ephesians, a letter he expects to be read in the hearing of children. He said, yeah, no, I totally get that. It's just that there's, a, there's a, quite a few Christians in this particular context who don't want their children to know about homosexuality because they don't want them to have to deal with sexual sin. You're going to have to do a lot more to stop your child experiencing sin than censor what goes into them. Because Jesus says, it's out of the heart. It's a heart issue. If you are a human being with a heart, then you are infected. You have the same spiritual disease that afflicts all of us. That's not to say that there's no place for thinking about what we take into our, our lives and, and what we filter out and all the rest of it, but the ultimate issue is our, our own heart. That's a challenge for, for many of us. It's a challenge too for our culture because the big narrative of our day is that in order for you to flourish as you, what do you need to do? You need to look inside your heart, discover who you really are, and embrace that, and be the best real you, you can be. No one else can tell you who you are. You've got to find that out for yourself. And whatever it is you see yourself as being deep down there inside, that is you. And you need to embrace it and live it out. That is the way to flourish. Jesus is saying in this verse that actually... If you look deep inside your heart, you are not going to find the solution to your angst. You're going to find the cause of it. So Jesus says there is a heart condition we all have. And he lists in verse 19 some of the symptoms of that condition. It's not an exhaustive live list, it's, it's a sampling. What kind of things come out of these hearts that are not naturally right with God? Well, evil thoughts. Murder. Adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Just a, a sample range of some of those symptoms. And that list hits all of us. Particular parts of that list will hit each one of us. 
And Jesus includes in that list of symptoms what we have in our translations as sexual immorality. That translates the Greek word porneia. I don't normally know Greek words and remember Greek words, but that one sticks in the mind because it sounds a bit familiar. Porneia. It's where we get the word pornography from. And it literally meant any sexual activity outside the covenant of marriage. So that would include premarital sex, it would include adultery, which Jesus also lists separately, it would include prostitution, uh, it would also include any kind of same sex sexual behavior as well. That was just a, a catch all term in those days for any sexual behavior outside the covenant of marriage. That is not the only thing Jesus says that defiles us in God's sight. So we mustn't single it out and only focus on it, but at the same time it is one of the things. So we mustn't minimalize it or pretend it isn't there. Um, I mention this first because a lot of people think today that, that Jesus was just kind of neutral when it comes to sexual ethics. In the popular way of thinking, the Old Testament, well, that was just medieval anyway, so let's just ignore that. The Apostle Paul was either, depending on your viewpoint, having a bad hair day when he wrote some of his letters, or just didn't know what we know about human sexuality, so we can kind of ignore some of what he says. But Jesus was just kind of mellowed out on the whole thing. Jesus took the Old Testament sexual ethic and intensified it. During the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if anyone looks at a woman with lust, he commits adultery in his heart. Jesus took the law from how it had often been received as being primarily about outward action and behavior and took it to inward attitude and thought. Now, Jesus doesn't name homosexuality in this verse in Matthew 15. It wasn't a matter of contention in first century Jewish circles. But verses like this do show us what to think about sexual ethics. Jesus is saying sex outside of marriage is morally wrong in God's sight. So though he doesn't name it, his teaching does include it. Just as if I was to say to you, I'm, I'm so grateful that you've, you've come today in all this horrible weather, you've made the effort of coming along to this event, and as a special thank you, I'm going to give each of you a hundred dollars. You have dollars here? Yeah. Um, we would take pounds. We would take pounds. You may be better with dollars at the moment, for all I know. But just imagine, I have to say to you, listen, as a thank you for coming, I'm going to give each of you $100 on the way out. And so at the end of the, the day comes, I'm stood by the door, you, you all come up and say hello. <laughs> you kind of lose a bit of that Canadian nurse and think, I'm going to go and say hello. And it, one of you comes up and you, you greet me, you shake my hand, say thank you very much, and, um, you know, good. Now, I've not named you, but you recognize that the words I've said include you, and they apply to you. 
Jesus doesn't need to name homosexuality to, to teach things that apply to it and show us how to think about it. By the way, I'm not going to give you money on the way out. That was just a thought experiment. I'm, I'm English and we're far too tight. Um, just a, two or three chapters later, we have Matthew 19. If you can look that up. A uh, really key passage on this whole issue. Uh, again, the Pharisees are around. We have the Pharisees to thank for, for much of the teaching we have in the Gospels, provoked by things that they were up to. So in verse 3, the Pharisees come up to Jesus and they test him by asking him a question. In other words, they're not asking Jesus a question to learn from him or to, to glean his wisdom. They're trying to test him. They're trying to catch him out. They're trying to trap him. They've, they've come up with a really good question to do that. Uh, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? That's a great question. If you want to trap Jesus in a kind of gotcha answer, this is the question for this time and this place. Uh, some Jewish rabbis were teaching that you could literally divorce your wife for any reason you wanted, even including one of them taught, if, if she burns your food, divorce her. So this was, this was not hypothetical, this was, this was going on. And whatever Jesus says, they will find some way of using it against him. If Jesus says, yeah, of course you can, no problem at all. Whatever, whatever, you re whatever reason you want, just divorce, no problem. If Jesus says that, they can come at him and say, hey, you're really soft on sin. But on the other hand, if Jesus says, no, of course you can't, it's ridiculous to think you can just divorce someone for any reason, they can come at him from the other angle and say, Jesus, you're, you're kind of out of step with where a lot of people are today. And they wait, if you look at verse 1, until they're in a very particular place to ask this question. They're away from Galilee, the region of Judea, beyond the Jordan. That is the jurisdiction of, of King Herod. Do you remember why John the Baptist was arrested? For speaking against... Herod's sexual ethics. So if Jesus says, no, you can't divorce your wife for any reason, you need to uphold the sanctity of marriage, all they have to do is get on the phone to Herod and say, hey, do you have any more platters in your kitchen cabinet? Well, Jesus answers in verse 4, and he does a number of things at the same time. Verse 4, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? That's coming back to Genesis 1, verse 27. Then verse 5, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So Jesus responds by going to Genesis 1 and then to Genesis 2. But notice what he's doing as he does that. The first thing he's doing, I'm sure, is he's poking fun at them in verse 4 because Pharisees had, were rigorous with their study of the Old Testament. And yet Jesus says to them, Have, did, you, did you get as far as Genesis 1? <laughs> did, you, did you make it that far in your, in your scripture study? But notice what else he's doing. He's showing us why these scriptures matter. 
Look at what he says about the Creator in verses 4 and 5. He says the Creator has done two things. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, therefore a man will leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. The Creator, Jesus says, says that. If you look back in Genesis 2 where Jesus takes that quotation from, it's the, it's the author of Genesis saying it. But Jesus is saying, if the author of Genesis has written it, it is the Creator who says it. In other words, by going back to Genesis, Jesus isn't just going back to the best of ancient human wisdom. What we see in Genesis is the Creator's blueprint that is still in force today. That's one of the many places Jesus just reflects his own understanding of the high authority of Scripture. Uh, when someone asks me, why do you believe the Bible? My first answer is because Jesus does. So what does Genesis 1 and 2 show us? Well, Jesus is asked about divorce, but he answers by talking about marriage. But notice that in order to talk about marriage in verse 5, he has to say something about creation in verse 4. And what he shows us is that from the beginning, the Creator has made them male and female. If you're going to understand divorce, you have to understand marriage. If you're going to understand marriage, you have to understand the fact that God has made us as male and female. It is the fact that God has made us male and female that shows us why we have this thing called marriage. Because God has made them male and female, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife. Now that doesn't mean that because we're male and female we must get married. It does mean that we only get married because God has made us male and female. Marriage is, is predicated, Jesus says, on God having made us as sexually different as men and women. Now that is a massively countercultural thing to, to say today, so I always try and make a, a clear point of saying, hey, Jesus is the one saying this. Because it is. I want people to know that their issue is not with me. Self-preservation kicks in at that point. <laughs> it's not with Christianity. It's not with some system of belief that got cooked up in an office somewhere and became Christianity. Their, their problem is with Jesus Christ. Jesus teaches this unavoidably, unambiguously. So by the way, that means that when, when, and this happens from time to time, when someone says to me, you just can't believe that. Not in this day and age. I, I have to say to them, you need to know that what you're really saying to me is that I shouldn't follow Jesus Christ. So do you think you have the personal authority to tell people they shouldn't follow Jesus Christ?
Are you confident doing that? And secondly, if you think you are, can you tell me what you have going for you that Jesus doesn't have going for him that means I should follow you and not follow him? It can sound a bit like a cop-out, sometimes it is, I guess, but a Christian is someone who follows Jesus. So you're going to need to persuade me to unfollow Jesus if you're going to want me to change my views on this. But you need to know it's him you're going up against, not the church, not me, and not Christianity, but Jesus Christ. Have you thought this one through? Do you actually know who he is? Are you confident enough that he's not who he says he is that you can get away with going up against him? He's the beginning and the end, the Alpha, the Omega. You can't be on the wrong side of history if you're on the right side of Jesus. So Jesus is teaching that marriage is by definition male and female. And the reason for that, he goes on and shows us that the two shall become one flesh. So verse 6, they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. In other words, Jesus is saying, This is a unique type of union. This coming together of the male and female uniquely is a one flesh union. And so Jesus isn't commenting on the, the type of feelings people have, but on the type of union that results. It's important for us to note this, I think, because sometimes Christians are heard to say, because sometimes Christians do say, that gay people can't love each other enough. And the problem with that kind of thinking is, A, the Bible doesn't say that, and B, I can point to some same-sex couples where there is enormous faithfulness, and a few heterosexual marriages where there's very little. Jesus is not commenting on the capacity of, of people for romantic feeling or commitment. He's talking about the kind of union that results. And we'll come back to that in a moment and why that is unique in Scripture. But for now, let us notice how the disciples respond. Jesus talks about this one flesh and, and how it's not designed to be undone. Then in verse 10, the disciples response to what Jesus has just said is, ha, huh, this sounds a bit like commitment. <laughs> so if such is the case of a man with his wife, maybe it's better not to marry. Not the first or last group of men to get cold feet. Now, here's a question. It's a question primarily to me and anyone else who, who gets to, to preach on marriage from time to time. I've preached at 
quite a few weddings. I, I teach on marriage every now and then. Here's the thing. No one has ever come up to me after I've taught on marriage and said, hey, if such is the case of a man and his wife, it's better not to marry. Any fellow pastors in the room, ask yourself the same question. Have you ever had that response? If we haven't, are we teaching marriage in the way Jesus is? It's interesting. Our assumption today is celibacy is implausible. Marriage is much easier, so let's make marriage as available as possible. Whereas in Matthew 19, marriage is hard. And so Jesus then commends celibacy. Marriage is going to be too much for some of you. And so when the disciples talk about it being better not to marry, Jesus doesn't say, that's why it's good to live together for a bit first. <laughs> no, the moment they question getting married, Jesus talks to them about eunuchs. Eunuchs were people who were celibate. Some involuntarily, some voluntarily. In other words, the only godly alternative to being in the covenant of, of marriage between a man and a woman is to be celibate. So just from the teaching of Jesus in these two passages, sex outside marriage is wrong. Marriage is between a man and a woman and is designed to be lifelong. And the only godly alternative to that union is to be celibate. Not just single, but celibate. Actually sexually abstaining. And I mention all that because it just reminds us, even if all the passages that mention homosexuality, even if they weren't in the Bible, we would know what to think on this issue. We would know what to think on this issue just from the lips of Jesus in the gospel. And so the issue ultimately is not what kind of homosexuality did Paul know about or not know about, what kind of gay relationships did they have in the Roman world or not. The ultimate issue is what Jesus teaches about marriage. The Bible doesn't give us a theology of homosexuality. The Bible gives us a theology of marriage. And what we think about homosexuality is but one outworking of what the Bible teaches about marriage. So what is it about marriage that is so unique that the Bible reserves it for, for a man and a woman? Well, the, the storyline of the Bible shows us. This is not an arbitrary relationship. God is not being arbitrary by saying, I approve of this, but not of that. Um, I've got a friend who's got a, a two, three-year-old daughter who is 95% of the time the, the cutest bundle of flesh and blood that exists on the planet. For the other 5% of the time, normally around mealtimes, well, my nickname for her is Kim Ilhanna because she's got a few kind of despotic North Korean dictatorship type tendencies within her <laughs> that come to the surface at the meal table. And I was around there once and my friend said, don't worry, it's going to be fine for dinner tonight because she told us last week that spaghetti's her favorite and we've made spaghetti. So it's going to be great, no problems at all. 
Well, <laughs> spaghetti was, was offered and spaghetti was rejected. <laughs> and she said, and I paraphrase, a new edict is issued throughout the land with immediate effect that spaghetti is no longer acceptable. <laughs> and they said, but like, you just told us it was your favorite. Last week you said it was your favorite. And she said, I reserve the right without notice <laughs> to change my mind and to, to enforce new regulations on this. And again, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but that was the gist. And the trouble is, so many people have that kind of view of God. He just randomly says, oh, I've decided I'm against this. And God's just randomly decided he doesn't like homosexuality. And so we need to see what the Bible says about marriage because it gives us the rationale for all the things the Bible says about sexual ethics flow from what the Bible says about marriage and what marriage means. Keller's book is brilliant on this, by the way. So, the Bible begins with a marriage. Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And the Bible ends with a marriage between Jesus Christ and his people. And the first marriage is a trailer for the second. It's the preview. So it's interesting, we, we, many of us are so familiar with Genesis 1 and 2, we don't notice the oddity. But Genesis 1 is wide-angle lens, account of creation. It's, it's vast and sweeping in scale. You've got the universe, literally everything is made, ecosystems, species, all the rest of it. Lots of CGI and special effects going on. Then in Genesis 2, we're suddenly in a garden and a guy and a girl get together. You ever wondered why the Bible starts with that? This man and woman are literally made for each other. They belong together. And their joining together in marriage becomes a clue to what the whole Bible is about. Uh, the, the theologian Tom Wright has noticed that in Genesis 1, you've got a set of complementarities, a set of pairings. The first is heaven and earth. You have the land and the sea and night and day and all those sorts of things. And then at the climax of the account of creation, male and female. And what goes on with that final pairing is a clue to what is going to happen with that first pairing. That the uniting of the man and the woman in marriage becomes a picture of the eventual uniting of heaven and earth in Jesus Christ because heaven and earth belong together too. And so as the Old Testament begins to unfold, we see that God is not just the, the big authority crown in the sky. He's groom. He's, he's come to, to win and to woo a people to himself. He comes with covenant promises. And we see in the Old Testament, his, his people are not just his servants, they're his bride. Often, sadly, his wayward and unfaithful bride. When Jesus arrives in the Gospels, one of the first things he calls himself is 
the bridegroom. He says, the bridegroom has come. I am that, that wonderful divine husband that the Old Testament kept promising. And Paul famously in the New Testament shows us that the parallelism between our relationship with Jesus and the relationship of a man and woman in marriage. Ephesians 5, he talks about husbands and wives and then says, guys, I'm really talking about Christ and the church. That's what this is ultimately about. 1 Corinthians 6, Paul shows us that actually just as a, a man and a woman become one flesh, Paul writes, those who come, I'm going to try and look it up rather than misquoting it. I'm determined to produce a, an edition of the Bible that is, that's the misremembered version. <laughs> so you can, you can never get it wrong. Um, First Corinthians, do you say first or one in Canada? First, okay. First Corinthians. It says one on the page, okay. Now you, you know better than the Bible, so first Corinthians um, six verse seventeen. Listen to this. Paul says He's just reminded us that the two will become one flesh, quoting Genesis chapter 2. Then he says in the next verse, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. There's a one flesh union between a, a man and a woman, and there's a one spirit union between Jesus and his people. And obviously at the end of the Bible, the great climax of the Bible is the wedding supper of the Lamb and his bride. At the end of the Bible, we see that the new Jerusalem coming down from heaven to earth, adorned as a bride, for the, uh, as adorned as a bride is for the husband. So marriage in the Bible is a picture of the big thing God is doing in the universe. He's winning a people for his son, Jesus Christ. And God has given us something embedded into human nature that reflects that. This instinct every culture has had to celebrate the union, lifelong union of a man and a woman in marriage. And it's because of what marriage points to and is ultimately a signpost to that it has the shape it has. When you recognize what it is for, you make sense of how it is. Um, a, a friend of mine once found in his, his house, he has no idea where it came from, a spoon that had a hole in it, like a designed hole in it. It's about the size of a slightly larger teaspoon with a hole. And he's like, what's the... The very things you need a spoon to lift up, this cannot lift up because it has a hole in it. So not knowing what to do with it, he thought he'd use it for entertainment and he would keep it in his sugar bowl. <laughs> he had people, he was in a university context, lots of international students would come around and he would just sort of see how different nationalities reacted to a spoon that couldn't do the thing that was required of it. And some cultures would, would kind of not say anything but just try harder and think, <laughs> I must be doing it wrong somewhere. 
other cultures would be immediately, this is, this is not, this is stupid, this doesn't work. <laughs> Guess which the Americans were, by the way. <laughs> anyway, it turns out he discovered later on, it's an olive spoon. You've got a jar of olives and whatever olives come in, you put the spoon in, as you lift up the olive, it drains. When you realize what it's for, you can make sense of the way it is. When we recognize what marriage is for, it accounts for the shape marriage has. If you don't know its purpose, you treat it like my friend treated that spoon. Think, well, I've got no real idea what this is, but I'll see what fun I can have with it. <laughs> that is why marriage in the Bible is, is heterosexual. It's the, it's the coming together of two unlike but complementary parties. And as Kevin DeYoung, I think, points out in his book, that the union of a man and a man or a woman and a woman cannot picture the union of Christ and the church. This most fundamental complementarity God has built into the human race, the union of the male and the female, is a union unlike any other. Because that distinction between us is unlike any other distinction. It is fundamental to our image bearing. In the accounts of creation, it is, you know, in his image he made him, male and female, he made them. Our maleness and femaleness helps us to image God. It's not that each sex is, is half the image and therefore you need one of each to have the whole image. But as Tim Keller says, there is a unique and non-interchangeable glory that each sex has that the other does not. And therefore each helps the other better image God. We need each other. Each is able to see things that the other is not. So this union is unique because of what it points to. And one of the implications of that, as we'll come to in the next session, is that helps us to understand how to honour marriage and also, by implication, how to honour singleness. Well, a few other things about how we communicate this. Uh, the first is we need to recognize that when it comes to the Bible's teaching on sexual ethics, all of us are in the same boat. There are a wide variety of patterns of, of sexual desire, patterns of sexual behavior. Some of us will be really different to one another on this issue. Some of us will experience temptations that others in the room are thinking, I just can't imagine how that would be a temptation. Yet for all that difference, the Bible says, actually, we're in the same boat. Because all of us are, are fallen in this area of life. None of us is what we should be in this area of life. That's part of the... The fact because sin is in our heart, it outworks and taints every area of life. So one of the kind of distinctive things about the Christian understanding of sin is it's not some discreet behavior that you can just avoid or stop. It is something that comes from our heart and taints everything. 
And therefore, there is no area of life where any of us can say, hey, I don't need Jesus for that. No area of life where we are everything that we should be. When it comes to sexual desire, all of us are broken and fallen in one way or another. All of us have desires that are disordered. You may be attracted to men or women or both or neither. But you're a sexual sinner. So if that's the case, we need to show how the gospel treats us the same. We need to show people how the gospel levels the playing field. Most people I've encountered, probably all people I've encountered in the secular LGBT community, think that we think they are worse than everybody else. That this sin, in, in the Christian's way of thinking, is the worst sin. That these are people who should be especially condemned and looked down on. And sadly, many Christians have given that very impression. But it just means we haven't understood our own hearts properly. I was giving a, a talk to a group of pastors back in England a few years ago on, on how to reach our LGBT friends with the gospel. And one pastor just said in the middle of this discussion, he said, yeah, but how can you talk to a gay man without being disgusted by him? And I said, by being more disgusted by your own sin, brother. All of us are fought. None of us can look down on someone else. And the moment we think we can, we've not understood grace. And we need to show people how the gospel treats us the same, fundamentally. So here's my, my MO when I, it comes to talking about this kind of issue. Don't say to someone what you can't say to everyone. Don't say to someone what you can't say to everyone. Because if you do, the person will mishear what you're saying. Our friends in the LGBT plus community need to hear what the gospel says to all of us on this issue in order to rightly understand what it says to them on this issue. Um, I was talking somewhere, a lady came up to me afterwards and said, I'm a, I'm a lesbian, what do you think about lesbianism? And I said, well, actually, Jesus has some really challenging things to say about sexuality to all of us. I said, oh, really, what, what does he say? So I talked about, you know, the, the, the brokenness of, of the human condition and the human heart and how that plays out in every area of life and how that means all of us actually are, are skewed in one way or another in our, in our desires and our sexual desires, that it's, it's humbling for every single one of us if we properly understand it. And we got through the entire conversation without me once ever having to comment on her specific sexuality. That's not because there isn't anything to say to her specifically, but because unless she gets that wider framework in place, she will mishear. If I just said, well, actually, the Bible says lesbianism is a sin, she would hear from that that I think she's worse than everybody else. which isn't what the Bible is saying. 
Um, I was talking to someone after an, an event I did. A guy came up to me and said, hey, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I'm gay. But I, I, I kind of want to have a chat because I read your book and I've started going to a church and I'm meeting up with a pastor and I'm reading Mark's Gospel and I'm in a small group. It's like, you're doing more church stuff than most people in my church are doing right now. So I said, what's drawing you to Christian things? And he said, well... I realize Jesus treats me the same as everybody else. I said, what do you mean by that? And he said, well, I've always thought that, and he said the particular, he used to run an LGBT advocacy group, he said the whole vibe of it was we're different. We're special, that you, we have the parade, you celebrate us. And he said as he began to encounter the message of Jesus, he realized Jesus doesn't treat him as different. Jesus treats him the same. And that had become deeply attractive to him. And it suddenly struck me that actually there is a, a kind of equality you get with Jesus Christ that you don't find in a secular culture that prides itself on equality. As I was talking to him, a, a lesbian couple said to me, why can't you treat us the same? And this guy said to them, listen, which way do you want it? Do you want to be the same or do you want to be different? And I was like, I'm just getting out of this conversation. I'll let you two kind of <laughs> figure this out. So we need to show people how the gospel treats us the same. That is my way of trying to head off the misconception people have that the gospel is unfair to gay people. What I'm trying to show is that it says every single one of us needs to repent when it comes to the issue of sexuality. Next, we need to show people the positives of the gospel. Uh, whenever the Bible gives us a, a prohibition a thou shalt not, the question we need to ask is what good thing is that prohibition protecting and preserving for us? Whenever, whenever God says no to something, what is he saying yes to by saying no to that? What is the good thing that he is saying yes to? In other words, it's not enough just to merely re recite all the biblical prohibitions when it comes to sexual ethics. Those are true, but those prohibitions themselves come within a framework of a positive story of good news. And so if we just give people the negatives of the faith, we're not giving them the gospel. I remember somebody describing, they, they described themselves as someone who used to be a Christian, isn't anymore. And they described, they were kind of trying to reflect their Christian bona fides from when they had been in the faith. They said, oh yeah, I was against all the right things. And they'd kind of been given the impression that that is what Christianity primarily consists of, is being opposed to certain things. If you're opposed to all of the things you should be opposed to, that makes you a Christian. What a warped view of Christianity. What a warped view of God. 
So we need to think, now, what is the good news of the gospel on this issue? Going back to those moral intuitions, how does the Bible's teaching on sexuality lead to our flourishing? What does it liberate us from? What harm does it prevent us? How is our own culture's attitude to these issues actually very, very constricting? We'll look at a couple of these things in the, in the next session. Next, we need to use narratives. Those moral intuitions that have changed in our culture over the last 10 or 15 years have changed primarily through narrative. We've been exposed to the same type of narrative countless numbers of times. Someone is, is having to repress their, their sexual identity. They finally come out. They embrace their sexual identity, even in the face of, of people who don't understand and affirm them. And that leads to flourishing. That is the hero narrative of our culture. And we see that in so many music videos, so many Netflix series, so many movies, so many stories, so many articles. The same narrative over and over and over again. Liberation, liberation, freedom, flourishing. Fulfillment. And so one of the things we need to do, to do is to say, it's actually, do you know what? The church has stories too. We need to respond to narrative with narrative. Uh, three, four years ago, I think it is, Matthew Vines wrote a very influential book called God and the Gay Christian. That's uh, a book that is trying to argue from the Bible for same-sex relationships. It's a very powerful book because actually the power of the book is in the emotional case it is making. So the book opens with stories of of gay people feeling suicidal and rejected by Christians because of the, how Christians have approached this issue. And the rest of the book is, is an emotional argument looking for exegetical warrant. And it entirely misses the point of the book to respond with 17 ways in which Matthew Vines has misread certain verses and responding point by point because the case of the book is, is a narrative one. The narrative up until this point has been one of harm. And we need a better narrative, and therefore we need to, to see if we've got the Bible wrong in a way that can give us that better narrative. And the only way to respond to that narrative is with our own narratives. To show Christians who can testify to the goodness of, of the Word of God in this area of life. So books like Rosaria's, Her Story... Uh, those of other people who've shared their, their stories in, the, in a public space, we need to use those stories. Uh, a few of us back in the UK set up a website uh, three or four years ago called livingout.org. And there's all sorts of things on the site, but the, the heart of it is, is video testimonies of, of Christians on this issue. Because in our culture, narrative is what has currency. 
And so we need to show people that actually you can flourish by living under the teaching of Jesus Christ on this issue. It's good for you. It's good for us. It's a good word for us, not a bad word for us. Jesus is life-giving, not life-taking. That's why it's great if we've got people in our own churches who can, can share something of their story on this. But let me finish this session with, with one more. I just want to share with one, one verse. It's well-known verse, John 1, verse 14. It's a kind of Christmassy verse, but, you know, with the weather right now and the <laughs> ice falling from heaven, it may, may fit. John 1, verse 14 And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father. Full of grace and truth. Jesus is full of grace and truth. That is something that defines and give shape to his glory. Grace and truth are together in Jesus. And what God has joined together, let not man separate. Biblically speaking, grace and truth go together. So that means if you think you have one without the other, you have neither. So many things in life we treat as an either-or. We think, well, I'm going to be a grace Christian or a truth Christian. Because truth is, is kind of cold and unfeeling and dry, whereas grace is fuzzy and warm and nice. And you kind of think, no, you've misunderstood both grace and truth. Grace and kindness is truth-telling. And truth is gracious and kind. And so often we think, I'm gonna, I'm, there, there are truth Christians out there, but I'm a grace Christian. I'm one of the nice ones. But if you're never telling someone the truth, you are not being gracious and you're not being kind. Others of us are like, no, I say it how it is, I just tell them what it's going on and pa. That's not Christian truth. Christian truth cares how someone feels. Christian truth is concerned not just with what is said, but what is heard and how that's received. So just to anticipate one of the questions I'm sure will come up, um, if we're invited to a gay wedding, what do we do? I get asked that all the time. I love being asked that question because I love it when Bible-believing Christians are invited to gay weddings. I kind of think, good on you for being the kind of Christian a gay couple wants at their wedding. Those of us who are never invited to gay weddings, we need to ask ourselves, are we being the kind of friend to the com gay community that Jesus would have us be? 
Do we go or do we not go? That, that's the big question a lot of people ask. And sometimes what, behind, what lies behind the question is, do I do the grace thing or the truth thing? And the answer is we've got to do both. There are good reasons to go and there are good reasons to not go. There are bad reasons to go and there are bad reasons to not go. I spoke to one friend of mine who'd been invited by a lesbian couple he and his wife know well to their wedding. And he was like, yeah, I'm going to go. I'm going to be the only Christian in a room full of 300 people. They, they know exactly what I believe, where I stand. There's no risk they're going to miss. I'm going to miscommunicate by being there and I'll get to be salt and light in that context. That's a good reason to go. I spoke to someone else in a similar situation. He said, I just don't feel in my conscience that I can be there because it just feels like my physical presence is affirming something I don't agree with. We're not to go against our conscience. That's a good reason not to go. But if we go because we don't want to make things awkward and we don't like confrontation, and that's a bad reason to go if it's just out of cowardice. And a bad reason to not go is, oh, I just don't like that kind of thing. I suspect to one couple whose nephew had invited them to his, his same-sex wedding. And their response was, oh, we don't agree with that. And they think they're being faithful by saying it in that way. But actually, biblical truth is kind. So if you feel you mustn't go, you need to not go in a way that maximizes grace and kindness. And rather than making them feel uncomfortable, do it in a way that makes you feel uncomfortable. So say to them, actually, this is really tearing me apart because your friendship means so much to me and the thought of me not being there at a life event is kind of killing me. But I also think as a Christian that I, I can't, you know, we, we land in different places on this issue. I just don't feel like I can be there. But I'm so nervous of saying that because I don't want to lose your friendship and I don't want you to feel like I'm rejecting you or judging you or anything like that. And when you guys are back, the first evening you're free, please come round for dinner. It's saying no with an invitation. That's grace. And if we're going we better be going in a way that upholds what we believe. It may not be the time and the place to talk about our theology of marriage and sexual ethics and all the rest of it. But we do need to make sure we have that conversation, not least because they're going to think we're disingenuous if we've never said what we really think on this issue. Grace and truth go together in Jesus. If we think if we have one without the other, we have neither. Whatever we do, we need to do it with maximum grace and maximum truth. Let's pray. Father, we so thank you that you join together in Jesus traits we so naturally tend to separate. That Jesus was never unkind, he was never untruthful. 
And we want to embody that very same character in our own lives, Father. We want to be people who are full of grace and truth. We want to be people who are like Jesus. So we pray for wisdom in some of the scenarios that, that come our way. Wisdom to know, again, what to say and when to say it, how to react, how to care for people. Father, we thank you for the truths that the Bible gives us the truth of what marriage points to, of what we have in you through Christ. Help us to grow in our understanding of these things. Help that understanding to fuel our love for Christ, for the, the wonderful promises that we have in him. And help us to know how to uphold and commend that truth to a watching world. In Jesus' name, amen.